Hello, welcome to another exciting episode of the New Discourses podcast. I am James Lindsay, your intrepid host, uh, the founder of New Discourses and of the podcast. And um, we need to talk about something interesting uh, today. The thing is, I have recently accidentally swallowed a white pill. Now, I don't know if you know all the pills. There's pills for everything these days. Um, Allegedly, we all know about the uh, blue and red pills. So I'll just summarize some pills really quickly. The blue pill and the red pill obviously refer back to the matrix. The idea is that if you take the blue pill, you stay in the matrix, wake up and believe whatever you want. That's you listening to CNN and thinking that the gated institutional narrative is still true. The red pill is that you exit the matrix. In other words, that you start to become aware of the fact that that gated institutional narrative is in fact gated and institutional and full of lies. And in fact, indeed a narrative, uh, it is a hyper real linguistic construction of a hyper reality that we don't actually live in or pseudo reality that we don't actually live in that's produced by the information economy that we live in. So the red pill exits that. Now there's these blue pill, that's the blue pill and the red pill. There's this black pill and this white pill as well. You know, this is like a Dr. Seuss um, who we're not allowed to talk about anymore because he's canceled, but we can still have red pill, blue pill, I guess, black pill, white pill um, if we want to. And so the black pill is the idea that the powers that be, if you will, that the, the big whoever they are, the deep state, the woke, whoever the enemy is, has won. The oligarchs are taking over. The enlightenment is over. We are now entering into a new kind of dark age or tyranny or global communism or something. Black pill is we, the champions and believers in of freedom, have lost. And there's nothing we can do. Managed decline is the way of things. Eventually, it will be catastrophic decline, and we have lost, and there's very little we can do. So black pill is like the most negative thing in the world. It's it's giving up. It's, it is, in the proper terminology, demoralization. It is the belief that, 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 we, that we've lost, and therefore that we're too demoralized to continue trying. Of course, that is the goal of a... Uh, communist revolutionary movement is to demoralize their opposition. So we can't take the black pill, or if you do, you can only use it as like seasoning or something. Um, But a white pill is this belief in hope. It's this belief that there's a way out, like something good is happening. Um, uh, Michael Malice, who many of you will know uh, from Twitter or his books or his podcast, one of the biggest white pills he drops, he says, is that just, he just says being black pilled is believing that these people can win. And then we'll show some picture of or tweet or something from one of these weirdos uh, in the woke movement or the globalists or whatever, Klaus Schwab in his bikini or whatever it happens to be. And um, his whole little like bridal playset or whatever that is on the beach. And it's the belief that they can win as being black pilled. And that's actually kind of a white pill because obviously if things are better than that, then we can see a way out. And so there are white pills are sometimes small, but I've had a very big one. Um, 
or it could be small like seeing pushback successfully in a state government or in a corporation or an organization or something. But I've had a very big one recently. It's actually a complete reframing of what I think is going on in the world. And it's funny that I kind of derive it from Marx. But basically what I think is happening is that we have actually entered into the second enlightenment, a fully second enlightenment movement. And I mean, it's different than the first one. Um, very different because the internet is very different in terms of the information economy that it produces. And so we're in enlightenment 2.0 and just like in enlightenment 1.0, the powers that be don't want to lose their power, which because they maintain a lot of it through a gated institutional narrative, as Eric Weinstein called it, a official narrative propaganda, because they maintain it that way, uh, they are at threat of losing all of their power because we now have the internet and we can fact check them like crazy. And their fact checkers are kind of irrelevant. And so I've completely reframed for myself what the intellectual or information economy side of the enlightenment was and am think am quite sure that we're now in a second enlightenment. And like I said, the powers that be that are going to lose as this enlightenment proceeds are trying as desperately as they can to cling to the slowly sinking hull of the Titanic that they're on, while the rest of us have taken to lifeboats and whatever else. And maybe the Titanic wasn't the best metaphor for this, but I think that they are trying to cling to the dying order because it gives them power, but it's a little more sophisticated than that, what I think. So in general, what I have perceived, and I perceive this, of course, by reading infinite critical theory, thinking obscenely much about the state of the weird world that we live in right now, and then reading about the enlightenment itself, reading the, uh, I've been reading this book, Fire and Light, I think by Robert Burns. I'd have to check if it's Robert. I'm pretty sure it's, it's Burns at any rate. I, I think he might be a commie, but I'm not totally sure. Uh, he's interesting enough book, though. History of the Enlightenment is a very interesting thing. And so I'm reading a little of this. I'm reading a little bit about their school. I've read some of these other uh, you know, books about the time. I've read about the thinkers. I've looked them up on the internet and read about you know, Jefferson and uh, Locke and what what I'm struck by, I mean, I could name others, Voltaire and so on, uh, Lafayette, Montesquieu. Um, what I'm struck by is like their time, like we think that this is some dark times that we're in and it truly is, but their times were screwed up. I mean, they're publishing stuff posthumously because if they didn't, they would get killed or imprisoned. And many of them did get imprisoned for things that they got, they got imprisoned for things that they wrote. Voltaire got imprisoned for things that he wrote. Voltaire um, did a lot of what he did and understood the, 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 the British Enlightenment the way that he did because he got arrested for something he wrote and negotiated exile to Britain as his punishment instead of indefinite imprisonment. Exile instead of imprisonment. And so their times were screwed up. Like people were dying. People were fighting over ideas 
whereas we mostly just have to deal with terrible policy getting in and other effects and things could get very bad i mean i'm not trying to downplay how bad things could get if the um attempted grab power grab to maintain that uh dying order or to to jump it forward into a new order but it's really maintaining that dying order uh were to succeed it will require totalitarianism basically we're in the midst of a huge at the early phase actually of a huge reorganizing of the entire information economy at a tremendously fundamental level and i hate to admit it but the postmodernists got there first although they got there badly um much of what they wrote can be understood and having glimpsed 50 years early or earlier than now anyway 60 years early in some of these cases what's actually happening is it the um so they're kind of like the rousseau of uh, he had you know he's a enlightenment kind of figure but he, he kind of had it wrong and had some really bad ideas and uh those led to some really bad consequences in, say, the French Revolution. And since you can link, you know, Rousseau-inspired Romanticism, Romanticism-inspired Existentialism, and Existentialism gave birth to Structuralism. Structuralism evolved into post-structuralism, and post-structuralism is core to postmodernism. It's not a big surprise that this kind of the Rousseauian flavor of what's happening right now. But they noticed what I can really only best explain kind of by going through this in a kind of Marxian analysis, and then I'll kind of break down what's really kind of going on. Um, Marx, as you've heard me probably do in the past, uh, believed in uh, six different stages of history. This was a historicism. I don't think Marx was right about the six stages of history and a scientific study of history was actually scientific and predictive. But I do think that where he was looking backwards, he wasn't wholly mistaken with what he was describing about the, the, the changes in the, uh, in the material conditions of the world and how they evolved. And he laid out these six stages of material conditions, the history of material conditions, while believing that he lived in the midst of the peak of the fourth of those six stages. So my argument would be that his first four are probably a bit um, coarse and ridiculous, but his fifth and sixth were totally off the mark because they depend on his theory being right, and it's not. In fact, it's horrifically wrong. Um, and so I, I have to frame it that way, but Marx essentially believed that we start off, and I don't want to get too tendentious with this, but we, we start off in a primitive economy a primitive uh, tribal communism where everybody within tribes shares things but they're all estranged from one another we then transition into a second phase of history where slavery is taken up where you have some tribes conquering others and those tribes uh, force everybody to to do the labor and to, to produce the material resources for the upper crust of society this eventually is recognized as an immoral abomination. So that's stages one and two. Stage three enters as a, in the state economy, a th um, feudal lords ruling over things, uh, serfs working for them, and a hierarchy of the aristocracy all above the plebs, all above the commoners. 
the rabble, the people, as Voltaire referred to them, the the pack of dogs or whatever that kind of, I don't know, it's something canine in French. Um, and he did. Voltaire was a bit of a, a bit of a snob in that regard. Um, and eventually that idea that only some people are propertied gives way to property rights and then everybody becomes property and you enter into the state of capitalism where everybody can trade and, and work with their own cap their, their own property their own capital however they wish and so it's a kind of universal freedom stage very liberal marx then believed that this needed to be managed to produce equal outcomes in a managed economy called socialism that would be ruled over by a dictatorship of his anointed Marxian theorists known as the proletariat, the dictatorship of the proletariat, uh, or as Lenin took it up, a vanguard party of members of the bourgeoisie that would that know the theory and will usher the stupid, lazy working class through it. And then you have, lastly, communism evolving out of that, and that's really not the point. I really only need the first five of these six stages, but that's how Marx saw it. And so, I think for myself, anybody who's kind of reflected in this direction, I think when we think of the Enlightenment, which I will refer to now as Enlightenment 1.0, which largely unfolded over a couple of centuries, um, maybe the beginning in the 16th uh, and on, you know, having significantly developed probably into the sciences by the late 19th. So this enlightenment of, of humanity uh, occurred then. And we, we often think of that alongside the great liberalizing movements. Like I just summarized for Marxism, viewing historically speaking, that in that same era during those enlightenments, we also had the great liberal revolutions and we entered into the fourth stage of political uh, economy, or maybe, maybe not. Well, I digress. We entered into democracy. We entered into capitalism, certainly the fourth stage of material conditions, according to his analysis. And we entered, we entered broadly. We look at like the idea of science and liberal science, as, as Jonathan Rauch calls it in his brilliant book, Kindly Inquisitors. We look at this and we think, aha, uh -huh, everything's in this new liberal order, this fourth stage of history where freedom reigns. And of course, if you've paid attention to what I've said about critical race theory, mirroring this historicism, uh, the third stage of history there would have been segregation, apartheid, and Jim Crow, and it ended in the 1960s. So things don't always go this way. And I'm, again, I'm not endorsing Marx's historicism, but I think it's a useful construct for what I want to talk about uh, here. Because I think that the mistake is believing that in Enlightenment 1.0, we moved into a fourth stage of history in the information economy where everything's free and everybody can do the experiment. That's scientific universalism. And we didn't. We did not. Enlightenment 1.0 did not move us in the information economy from stage three into stage four, as happened in the material economy around the same time, if we grant that analysis. It, I think, moved us from stage two to stage three. And that we are now, with the advent of the internet, in possession of a tool that is moving us from stage three to stage four. And so revolutionary periods, when we get to choose, and I mean that, are we choosing an American-style revolution that leads to greater freedom, or are we choosing a French-style revolution that leads to the terror? That's the choice we get to make now as we enter into this new phase.
And let me just kind of summarize the first stage if we want to parallel to the tribal thing is that it's again tribal superstitions. We, every tribe has its own superstitions. They have their own little provincial religions or faiths or whatever we want to call them. That's stage one of history. And then certain religions become very dominant. We'd call that maybe a magisterial state where you have very big religions that are going around essentially conquering uh territory ideologically, whether it's Christianity, whether it's Islam, whether it's Buddhism, whatever it happens to be, and whatever the mode of conquer might be, um, whether it's conversion uh, by force, conversion by persuasion, conversion by transformation by the Holy Spirit, if you want, conversion by um, merely persuasion, whatever the deal is. So the second phase of information economy history is a magisterial stage where the big world religions become the primary repositories of information and knowledge, how we are going to understand and contextualize information. A third stage then would be one, if we parallel feudal estates, where the expert caste, the knowledge and information aristocrats come into being and those are the people who control the information economy, whether they're leaders in academia, as we would have it now, or in media, that the, the production and transmission of information, the expert caste and their communicators. And so my contention largely, as I've mentioned, the gated institutional narrative is why Eric Weinstein called it several times now, my contention is that in the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries particularly, we did not through that period of time move into a free and liberal state, a liberal science that Jonathan Rauch describes in Kindly Inquisitors. We did not move into a fourth stage of history, equal open freedom state. We moved into the feudal state. And we've been in a feudal information economy. And for many of us who consider ourselves smart and academic and uh, kind of players in the marketplace of ideas, if you will, significant players in the marketplace of ideas, we've believed incorrectly that we've had this freedom that didn't yet exist. In the magisterial information economy, Churches were the repositories of knowledge, and we moved into a feudal one that's administered by ordained experts rather than priests that are embedded in institutions that are recognized as authorities of information and knowledge. Institutions like, in our day, the CDC, for example, or the NIH, or the NHS, or the WHO. Lots of different ones. Or the University of whatever state you want, or Harvard, or Yale, or Stanford. And so we have these kind of feudal estates in that regard that are these institutions that are filled with credentialed experts. And maybe the, maybe the feudal estate, though, is um, CNN, or MSNBC, or Fox. But there's still this kind of very powerful media entity with a very wide reach that can reach all kinds of millions of people, etc. And for a while, that's all there was. There were the three channels on TV MS, uh, in, in the United States, anyway, CB, uh, was it CBS, NBC, and uh, ABC. There were the three channels 
really. They communicated virtually everything. It could be in radio to NPR versus, you know, whatever else. Eventually talk radio came out of the scene in the 80s. What you start to see when you have things like talk radio and then cable TV and then the internet is that this is breaking. This is breaking down. The feudal lords of the information economy at the level of media can no longer control all of the information. Eventually, this is going to spread to people who so-called do their own research. And the academics no longer hold sway. So my former, I think, friend, Tom Nichols, wrote a few years ago, uh, 2016 maybe, a book called The Death of Expertise, which I read and own, um, looking at, at the moment here in my office, uh, bemoaning this people doing their own research, the stupid plebs doing their own research. Uh, and from the perspective I have now, it's a hilarious book. Uh, the expert class has, in fact, humiliated itself against your average person doing his own research. And Tom wants the experts to have their power back and to be recognized, and he's not wrong that expertise means something, but it doesn't mean what it used to mean. It used to mean somebody who is a credentialed or ordained expert embedded within an official institution, and that's already falling apart due to different means of disseminating information, so a new media, and different means of generating research that everybody can participate in. So here we find ourselves in the midst of Enlightenment 2.0, which is moving us from the feudal information economy that we've been operating within, a gate behind a gated institutional narrative, into a f- truly free one. This is actually the emergence of the marketplace of ideas, a real marketplace of ideas. You've heard that the internet democratized information or democratized knowledge. And we're moving into the genuine marketplace of ideas that arrogant, stupid academics like my former self and many of my colleagues, my very smart colleagues, very smart people out there, uh, you got to watch out for them, have believed was already in existence. There was no marketplace of ideas. There was, I don't know exactly how to phrase it, like the, it, there was the equivalent of the mercantilism of ideas rather than a true marketplace. And that marketplace is emerging. And this is a marketplace via the internet and so on in which everyday people can actually do their own research and they can reach their own conclusions. And they, just like how capitalism gave people the right to own their own property and do with their own property what they want, it's not up to the Lord anymore. The kings don't hold everything. You have your own stuff, your own property, and you can take it and you can keep it and you can work with it or you can squander it or you can spend it or you can do whatever you want or you can invest it or try to build something with it and try to turn it into more property. And that's the heart of capitalism. And now we have this same thing emerging with information. So I think Enlightenment 1.0 did not move us into a marketplace of ideas. It moved us out of the church and into a feudal information situation. And Enlightenment 2.0 is moving us out of this feudal state. And this has just begun. And like I said, the postmodernists saw it, but badly, clumsily, in a way that's infected with Marx and Rousseau. rather profoundly and maybe even Nietzsche and rather profoundly they saw it 50 years ago where very few others did and we're now now all catching up and trying to put sense into it because the postmodernists definitely did not come to it from a position of sense or of even uh, success or progress which they didn't really believe in they thought 
progress as a meta narrative that can't really exist. I think this is what's actually happening. This is a huge white pill because what it means is that we are entering into a we are in a liminal state, as it turns out, between one information economy at the largest, if we want to use Marxian language, superstructural uh, sense into a second one, into a new, oh, fourth one, really, into the new one. And this is the Enlightenment 2.0. We are welcome. Let me be the first then to welcome you to Enlightenment 2.0, if somebody hasn't already. Maybe other people have made similar arguments uh, that I'm not aware of. But I, I think this is what's happening. And if this is what's happening, the greatest advantage, all of, look at what capitalism did for material conditions. No force on earth has ever been more successful once we found out about putting the bumper cars around or the bumpers around monopoly and trusts, which we still need to do in the tech sector and financial sector and a little bit else. Right now, we need to figure out how to manage that, especially, I mean, the Facebook, the, the, these social media companies, by the way, turned out to be a completely new phenomenon, a completely new kind of feudal property holder that actually gave people access to the idea that parallels property rights and communism. And then this thing they clearly now realize has gotten away from them because the, their ability to control us and control information has gotten away, gotten away from them as well, which threatens their base of power. So now we've entered into this new exciting phase in which we can do our own research. And just like we can risk our property to try to make more property, we can risk other aspects of our experience and existence in life based on having drawn our own conclusions, which might or might not be good. So Enlightenment 2.0, if you imagine what capitalism did for material conditions, nothing has done more to ameliorate poverty. Nothing has done more to improve the world. That's where I started to go with that. I got excited and totally tangentialed myself. Imagine what this is going to do for research. Imagine what this is going to do for human knowledge if it's allowed to go. This is actually an incredibly exciting thing. Now, the problem is, is that there are very powerful people who have enjoyed for a very long time absolute authority over what people are able to know and thus what they are able to believe. And they realize that the advent of the Internet and uh, even of just mass broadcast has completely undermined this. We will refer to these people, whether they're journalists, whether they're academics, whether they're weirdo technocrats as their worst species of these people, uh, as the expert caste. The expert caste have been the information aristocrats of this feudal order. And they are losing their grip because we are all becoming information propertied now, not just them. So we got to look at the expert cast. We got to look at expertise, this death of expertise Tom Nichols whined about without really understanding what was going on around him, apparently. Um, seems par for the course since at least Trump got in for this guy. Uh, expertise must mean on some level, the ability to get to correct or useful information about the world. And in particular, it's a tendency to be able to do so within a particular domain. So I've given a very, very, uh, very kind of circumspect definition of expertise. Expertise is ex an expert is not somebody who knows an expert is somebody who has a higher probability of knowing the thing that knowing something relevant to, about the thing than somebody who's not an expert. In other words, an expert is a type of consultant, but 
at the end of the day, normal people should be making their own decisions based on what consultation the experts give them. And they are people who, and this is kind of Tom's definition in the death of expertise, to give credit where credit's due, they're people who have a higher probability of being right than people who haven't gained expertise in the relevant domain. So again, that means correct or they have a higher probability of being able to get to correct or useful knowledge about the world in that given domain, the, the range of their expertise. It must mean that. And so the question has been, how do we figure out, and this is a very postmodern analysis, I'm putting on my Michel Foucault hat, but not the pedophile part of it, um, or any of the other weird amoral and other weird Foucauldian things about it. Uh, but Foucault was very concerned with this idea. He's like, how do we credential these people? How do we decide who are the experts and that what they say is knowledge? That's a political process, he said. And because it's a political process, he said, that's dangerous. And because it's a political process and it's dangerous, it's also contingent upon the social circumstances that enable that political process to endure. And I think he went too far into social constructivism, personally. I think he did. But nevertheless... Until the, the, the question of how experts become regarded as experts and trusted as experts is a legitimate thing to want to look more closely at, especially now, given the dramatic and almost unbelievable failure of experts, not in small things, but in a global catastrophe of, and I'm not talking about where this virus came from, although that might matter too, but this is a global catastrophe of expert making. There has been no bigger failure of the expert class for the public to see than what has transpired since the beginning of 2020, at least not that we know of. And there have been some doozies. The, the COVID-19 pandemic as a set of institutional responses by so-called experts has been a abject catastrophe for the expert caste. And so how do we credential these people? How do we know who they are? And obviously now we can tell that this is a politically corruptible process on the grandest and most important scale. But until quite recently, the full answer to that question is institutionally. We have institutions, primarily universities, but also the act of being, say, an anchor on CNN builds up a, a reputation uh, or working at a high-level appointment at the CDC confers a certain amount of uh, respect to you uh, or the NIH or whatever else. So it was it was an institutional question. The, we cultivated and uh, certified expertise institutionally. And of course that's limited because um, you know the institutions themselves are limited you can kind of we could we could do a whole Marcusean analysis of, of of that where he's talking about you know the administered state and how the administered state uh, only produces things that are are already within what it accepts. This is kind of Wolfgang Pauli. Was it Wolfgang Pauli who said uh, physics progresses one funeral at a time? It's that kind of idea, and then. Um, that it can't think outside of itself. It can't think in terms of a new paradigm. These things are limited. It's also limited and futile, I really should say. But it's also um, only as good as the lack of corruption, which is that very Foucauldian point. How do we certify these people? How do we certify the institution? How do we know that Harvard is giving out degrees worth a Harvard reputation? How do we uh, 
decide who graduates from Harvard and, you know, a particular degree path? How do we decide that we should believe those people based on that, that credential of a Harvard University degree or whatever it happens to be? And the problem for the, the experts is that the credentialing process has been extremely limited. It's very futile. It creates an aristocracy, uh, a propertied class in the information economy uh, that everybody else has to kind of defer to and, and, in a sense, work to maintain, basically, by creating enough uh, finances in the in the society to pay them to do that, and then um, it's only as good as as its corruption. So it's a very corruptible process, and the problem for the the expert cast is that the internet is rendering them obsolete. The internet does allow people to do their own research, and in fact, it allows people who are more insightful, more inquisitive, less institutionally captured, with less on the line in particular. They don't have to worry about upsetting their colleagues and getting the disrespect. Somebody out there just doing their research on their own about COVID-19 does not have to worry about possibly getting fired for publishing a uh, the wrong opinion about it. They don't have to, if somebody out there is just studying what's happened with something in geology that they're very interested in, they've been studying on the internet, uh, and they don't have to worry about upsetting the American Geophysical Union or whatever by publishing something too heterodox. They don't have the same uh, problems with the feudal and corruptible feudal system that the expert caste actually does. They also might be completely outside of that system's way of thinking and therefore have completely new insights. They might also be bringing different aspects of expertise together uh, in the so-called interdisciplinary way that, of course, all of the people are the postmodernists and the woke are all so interested in but doing so horrifically badly they're grifting off of interdisciplinary research to make it so they don't have to be experts in anything or know what they're talking about in anything um the prospect of very deep research decentralized deep research is now available to everybody somebody could make an observation that's insightful, stick it up on Reddit, and a team of people with the relevant expertise and time to kill sitting at home could read that, dig into it, go find some things out, and the hive mind of the Reddit thread could come up with something that is a genuinely novel insight that is actually correct, that puts egg all over the faces of the experts who've been saying something different all along. And this kind of thing used to be like you'd have your bold investigative journalists who would break these stories, but this kind of thing happens on the internet all the time now. The prospect of deep research is now available to everybody, and in fact it can be done in collaborative situations that could not possibly have been imagined and can't even be affected in institutions. You think, oh well, the Harvard people could get on a Reddit. It's not that yes, they can, but the point is it's the Reddit, not the Harvard, that's making it happen. And Harvard can't actually tap that successfully because it's an institution that serves and exists mostly in the old paradigm and that cannot easily adapt itself to the new one, which is growing up organically and threatening to make it obsolete. Means, of course, of research vary from individual to individual. Not everybody's as good as it's at it. Some people are going to end up in QAnon or some other crazy conspiracy theory. Other people are going to connect the wrong dots in other ways. Other people are just not going to be very good at it. And they might be utterly convinced they know more than their doctor when, in fact, they are completely off base and doing something very bad for themselves, for example. 
But this new paradigm, what I've been saying is will give people, will, will be predicated on securing the right for people to take risks based on the conclusions that they draw from their own research without always, without regarding the experts as anything more than consultants. It's a different way to think about them. So far worse than just being made obsolete, we are now at the stage, this has progressed far enough especially due to the emergence of social media, like I just mentioned, Reddit or whatever. It's way worse than obsolescence for the expert cast because now the expert cast is routinely, as I was just describing, being embarrassed by these people. It's not that they're celebrating, oh my gosh, these uh, the hive mind on a Reddit thread or whatever has, has figured out this amazing thing. Let's go do what we can. It's they are actually having put out information that's just being discovered to be horrifically wrong with bad consequences that touch a lot of people's lives and normal everyday people are the ones in many cases, not all cases, figuring this stuff out, especially when they have some of the relevant expertise. And this is undermining trust in that credentialing system and the experts it produces and credentials largely as it should, because that system has ossified to the point of basically being necrotic. It, it the current institutional system we have cannot keep up with the information economy generated by the internet. The internet is going to, is, has, is, will continue to create something far beyond what it can operate with. I'm not saying that their system was bad. It was probably good for what we had before we had information exchange at the level of the internet where everybody in some sense has access to gain intellectual property. I don't mean that in the legal sense. I mean that in the sense of being able to do your own research, draw your own conclusions. So all of a sudden, a lot of what was considered expertise is being shown to be false expertise, and there are many types of false expertise. And it raises the important question for our age of how are we going to discern real expertise in this increasingly decentralized information economy that's emerging around Enlightenment 2.0. So... False expertise, I already mentioned some types. You have the old school type where your funerals are how physics progress. So you have people who are stuck in the old way of thinking. They can't think in the new way, some new insight or whatever. And so it has to match existing ossified knowledge. Uh, so you have the, the out-of-date false expert, right? They haven't updated their files. For my purposes, I think Steven Pinker is this kind of person, brilliant thinker, great researcher, etc. If you want a name for one hasn't updated his model of the world since the 90s. So he's like, oh yeah, liberalism won, very Francis Fukuyama, end of history. Look at how great it's progressing along, and that's just what's happening. Totally oblivious to what's really happening here, and we'll come back to the stages of history to see it. So that's a type of that. Um, there are also people who are cranks and frauds and charlatans. There are also people who have earned uh, degrees um for relatively bad reasons. There are also country club invitation type false experts. Uh, and then there are technocrats who are to some degree experts, but they're also probably to some degree bullshit artists, but their goal is to use their status as experts to control other people. Very false expert because the political agenda always is going to trump truth for these people. Eventually, uh, even Marcuse said that, I mean, good Lord. And certainly, Foucault thought it, and even if the, it's just true, even the leftists upon whom the crazy world we live in now is built were able to see that 
it everybody can see it and so how do we discern real expertise that's harder but the answer must start and end somehow with are they able to get the right answer are they able to do the job are they able to solve the problem and figure things out and imagine just for a minute if you will everything that's been called a conspiracy theory with regard to COVID-19 that's been true that people on the internet figured out often within weeks often within March of 2020 you know, for example, the use of vitamin D, which we now know closes ACE2 receptors and can limit, in addition to fortifying the immune system, and therefore can limit the ability of, of COVID to, to attach to the um, specific, I guess, epithelial tissue or whatever it is that it attaches to. Uh, or you're not allowed to say the word that rhymes with horse pectin, uh, horse paste pectin you're not allowed to say that one uh on podcasts if you want them to be on youtube and so um or uh the fish tank cleaner stuff whatever that was called it's not quite the same thing that's in tonic water it's a you know hydroxy something or another that you're not supposed to say chloro something um somebody named quinn i don't know what i'm talking about uh you know you're not allowed to say these things um of course i'm just being ironic i'm not really that worried about saying them um all of these things that people are getting in shape, being healthy, blah, 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 blah. So many different things people were noticing might work. The vast base of knowledge that could be rapidly disseminated if it wasn't for some weird feudal estate system deciding to clamp its ass down on everything and try to suppress getting that egg on their face, getting embarrassed. The solutions that we could have faced or could have been had access to very quickly, very early on that would have made a tremendous amount of difference in the COVID-19 pandemic emerged. I mean, there's some of this stuff emerged within the first few weeks as plausible, could have been worked out, could experiments could have been being run both formally and informally to find it. it's amazing what this 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 new Enlightenment 2. Point, post Enlightenment 2.0 marketplace of ideas is going to be able to produce. Um, so being able to do the job is going to be how we do that. How we end up credentialing people as people who we know we can trust, rather than it being this kind of wild, wild west where you get kind of an intuition based on people you've seen be right or whatever, and maybe it'll happen through. I mean, something that social media evolves as some kind of a tool. It shouldn't be likes and retweets and all of that crap because that's so easily gameable. But, you know, there might be something that evolves that fills that gap and allows us to start identifying people's success rates, for example, uh, to discern what real expertise looks. And maybe it's not even got anything to do with people. The no necessarily person on the Reddit thread that I gave up, the hypothetical Reddit thread I mentioned earlier, is the, the super genius who needs to be credited. It's the thread itself, the conclusion it generated that matters. The people are irrelevant. That's kind of the ideal of science in the marketplace of ideas, that who said a thing doesn't matter at all. It's completely, the idea is all that matters, completely disconnected from who said it. But the feudal system requires aristocrats and experts. So these information lordlings, as I just said with the COVID-19, very clearly had a threat to their power base. Maybe this was more sinister than, than a lot of people believe, but even if it wasn't, you can see what's, what's happening. The embar they, could, they were about to be completely embarrassed by noobs on the internet, just like we saw with the um, GameStop and AMC uh, short squeezes at, in the stock market, which were both Reddit phenomenon. And so... Um, something very different is happening now. And the information lordlings want to maintain their little fiefdoms. 
Harvard still wants to have all the imprimatur. Harvard must be smarter than, um, you know, Reddit. In particular, Wall Street must be smarter than Reddit. And so when these guys in real consequence got squeezed out of billions of dollars and some huge hedge funds uh, ended up getting basically shut down, you just saw this technocratic clampdown on the exchange of information to prevent that from being able to happen any further. The information lordlings are afraid because their way of controlling information and thus holding on to power, if we're especially accepting the parts of Foucault that are correct, is crumbling. In fact, it's it's actually just, it's like a, a bunch of plant, like a, a very rapid growth of plants is just tearing apart some concrete edifice from underneath as fast as you can imagine it. That's the internet. We're entering into a genuine marketplace of ideas and the aristocratic caste in this dying information economy is out of touch and it doesn't know what it's doing and it's unresponsive um, just like the aristocrats in the late 18th century were becoming and into the 19th century the credentialed expert caste together with its propagandists are losing their grip on the ability to produce and, and transmit the gated institutional narrative every narrative pivot they try to pull right now Critical race theory kind of dies. They go into COVID. It's all ridiculous. They can't even kind of maintain this vaccinated versus unvaccinated narrative crumble is crumbling around them so fast. They keep trying to pivot to climate change. It doesn't take. They try to pull off different maneuvers. It looks almost like false flag type things or whatever. Look how many times conspiracy theorists have been right, by the way, because they were forerunners in this uh, decentralized information economy doing their own research and not matching the gate of institutional narrative. Uh, these kind of false flag events, these weird things that happened around the, whether it's January 6th, whether it's the kidnapping of Gretchen Whitmer plot thing in Michigan, whether it's the rally here that recently in September uh, about January 6th that looked like it was just a total fraud. Nobody's falling for this crap anymore. Like they try their little tricks and nobody's falling for it. Nobody trusts the information economy that they that they try to lord over, and that only makes them want to hold on to it more. I meant I didn't mention entertainment. Like, why do all the movies suck? Because there's the same problem. The institutional like I used to I can't watch TV and I haven't been able to for a long time because I tell people I can see the script and I don't don't find it engaging that you something new has to be coming out of this something more creative something more uh something that deals with that problem and the the entertainment complex has decided that propaganda is a better way to go than to try to solve that problem because it enables them to con keep control of their market uh, and then to squeeze out people who don't play along and give them no uh routes to um to, to publish or produce or you know distribute that's what i was looking for their their productions um certainly mike nano was having distribution issues around his produ production of our uh of the film regarding the grievance studies project that he's still making and nearly done with uh covid issues in in australia being the primary hang-up now to finishing it um Lots of issues came up. I don't have to talk too much about them, but there was at one point a lot of money on the line from an, organi uh, an institutional program in Australia that went all to woke stuff, like utterly ridiculous films about like women with armpit hair that they grow out and whatever. And it's just like just utterly ridiculous stuff. They were like virtually all woke and the Grievance Studies Affair film wasn't exactly on that list. So again, you can see the people who are trying to keep hold of that power using their institutional abusing a 
abusing their institutional power to maintain their grip on the dying information age and the power that it confers to them. Um, what we have now then are kind of like, you know, information age prospectors and they're, they're like, some of them are, you know, they're, they're like, they're, they're finding gold or whatever it is out in the, in the wilderness of the internet. And they are threatening the base of the information aristocracy. Uh, social media platforms are an interesting case here because in a sense, all of these things, the media companies, the social media companies, the institute, big institutions, credentialing institutions and credentialed institutions, official institutions are like aristocratic landowners in a dying order. Um, which is a bit funny because the, like I said, the social media companies turned out to be the ones who opened Pandora's box. Really? I mean, I guess like talk radio and cable TV did to a degree, but what really opened Pandora's box was the emergence out of Silicon Valley of these big social media platforms where people could very quickly both research through like Google and Wikipedia, et cetera, and then disseminate the ideas that they're running into to other people and then compare expertise. Uh, it's funny because they have become kind of the biggest enforcers. So they don't want to lose this, right? But we serfs who can do our own research now, in other words, have our own property in the intellectual economy or the, the information economy are threatening the whole order. Because we have access to information that they, we used to only have access to information that made it through publishing houses or made it onto television or whatever was approved. Or if we went to college and we got taught by the credentialed experts that the college would hire. And now everybody has information. Everybody can share information. Everybody can go find the holes in their arguments. And we're revealing their limitations, the fraud, the corruption, the obsolescence of this information aristocracy. And so for them, this much must must, must be squelched. And that I think is what's happening. Now we come back to the Marx thing because we need a great reset of how we do everything before this information economy can get out of hand. And maybe it already has, and that's why they have to act fast. See, so for Marx, stage four capitalism, when people have their own property, bleeds is to be it creates its own problems and therefore has to be replaced by socialism stage five, which is a managed economy by the right people who understand the right ideas for how society is supposed to distribute material resources. And socialism is supposed to be that managed economy and it's supposed to be ruled by a dictatorship of the proletariat. Well, in the information age, what we have is we have people who control the aristocrats who control the gated institutional narrative realizing with lots of Marxist and neo-Marxist theory deeply in their thinking, who are realizing they're losing their grip on their power, they're losing their grip on their control, just like the aristocrats and kings and lords of old, when the propertied class spread out to being everybody. They're losing their grip on that. And what they're trying to do is make stage four of the information economy history as short as possible by transitioning into that managed state, the managed information economy that will be led by a dictatorship of the technocrats. It's that simple. Certain special experts, probably ones who go to Davos 
or who sit on the most important of these credentialing institutions, maybe that's Harvard, certainly it's places like the WHO and the UN, the EU, and all of the uh, committees and things surrounding these things, these super important experts are going to tell us what's correct environmentally. They're going to tell us what's correct socially. They're going to tell us how to organize our uh, businesses, our corporations, our lives, and how, what, what responsible governance looks like. They're going to become the, the representatives, self-appointed representatives of the stakeholders of the world in terms of environmental, social, governance, ESG is the name for that, metrics. They're going to establish themselves as the proper, true, technocratic experts of sustainability, this, as we talked about in the last episode of the New Discourses podcast with Marcusa, um, uh, with the sustainable development goals that they're putting forth. They're going to try to make sure that we have a social credit system put into place so that people can't express the wrong opinions that would embarrass them or reveal their limitations, their fraud, their corruption, the obsolescence of this aristocracy. What socialism is, is an attempt to, to, to become a parasite upon a capitalist system and create a new aristocracy in the party. What this technocratic communofascism that we're dealing with now is, is an attempt to realize that the information economy just opened up totally. A real marketplace of ideas is emerging rapidly, and that steals control from the people who have been using the, arist the arist aristocratic system to control everything. And so they need to establish a new aristocracy, which will be a global public-private partnership, as they say it, or a stakeholder capitalism, where everything will be managed by these so-called experts, the new expert cast, who are actually the people who play along with this agenda. The limitations, fraud, corruptions, and obsolescence are going to be obvious, and they are obvious. And so what you have then, if we accept, again, that Marxian analysis, whatever grain of salt necessary to do so, is that we where the where the Marxists wanted to take us from stage four of history, which is capitalism, where Marx saw, where Marx was, where, from which he wrote, and move us into a managed economy that produces material equity called socialism, we now have the situation that we are exiting stage three, the feudal stage of history in the information economy, entering into the true enlightenment, or enlightenment 2.0, the free, open marketplace of ideas. And we have certain technocrats who want to very quickly transition us out of that freedom, which is finally just emerging, information freedom. Just like with the advent of, of you know, lock-in property rights, we had all of a sudden the emergence of capitalism, we had this boom in freedom, we had this complete transformation of prosperity and flourishing in the world, and this Enlightenment 2.0 is going to be a complete transformation of understanding and transparency and all of these other beneficial things uh, in the world, if it's allowed to progress properly, uh, or allowed to progress Actually, I should say not properly, more organically, although we have certain, just like monopoly was a problem for capitalism, there'll be pro problems within 
within the information economy deregulating completely or decentralizing completely that will have to be figured out at some point. They're trying to skip forward. They're seeing the problems potential in, in with regard to creating the, you know, I don't know, conspiracy theories or whatever. And they're trying to clamp down on that before it can get too far. But they're also, and much more importantly, trying to maintain the grip on the power that the gated institutional narrative and the credentialing aristocracy, information aristocracy situation that we are exiting now gave. So this is how I perceive what's going on and what's, what's happening in the world. The lordlings of the dying information economy who can no longer lie so easily cover up their abuses, their crimes against humanity, and the pursuit of their own agendas and often profits are threatened by this essential shift in the information economy. And they want to maintain their power. They want to maintain their advantage by maintaining their ability to control information strategically, which is, in other words, to say, to lie, to be able to continue to lie to us, to gaslight us, to tell us something not true that maintains their advantage. Funny how the iron law of woke projection and corruption both apply here. So they are attempting, like I said, to minimize the span of free flowing information of a true marketplace of ideas and it being in existence by transitioning us from one administered information economy and an aristocracy of experts into another, which is even worse, an oligarchy of technocrats with the greatest possible haste by means of mechanisms like a great reset and the attempt to use, whether it's passports or whatever, to establish a social credit system that will dramatically throttle people's ability to express opinions in contradiction to the official narrative that the technocratic oligarchy will establish. And this misunderstands the opportunity, well, it, it, maybe it just understands the opportunity because there will be a gigantic shift. The One of the products, once we figured out about the monopoly problem, one of the products of capitalism, first of all, it created tremendous wealth and prosperity. It created tremendous opportunity to build infrastructure, physical infrastructure, capital in a sense, etc. But it eventually established a gigantic middle class once we figured out the monopoly problem. All of these things will emerge in parallel in the information economy if it's allowed to evolve and if we can solve whatever parallel might exist to a monopoly or a trust problem um, that will be identified when I have not yet identified it but I think we could think through it in relatively short order and the hive mind could figure it out pretty quickly uh, and the, the benefit the potential benefits are just unbelievable and the problem is, is it decentralizes those benefits. A gigantic middle class means that the distance between the aristocrats in terms of power, status, opportunity, etc., and the plebs uh, narrows tremendously. And socialism, information socialism, which is a technological or technocratic oligarchy, uh, run by a technocratic oligarchy by ESG and SGUs or whatever they are, SDGs, SGUs, something else, um, sustainable development goals is what I was talking about. Um, that thing, the, that thing is, is, is the supposed to be the answer that prevents us from being able to get to that by, so that it can maintain power for the people who are already kind of at the top. 
So some people are talking about there there's an imminent collapse in our financial markets and that the weird globalist oligarchy type people know this is coming and they're trying to arrange things, whether to maintain the inability for a populist revolt to organize or whether it's to maintain their own power and rich lifestyles or wealth through the coming financial calamity. I don't know if that's true. It might be true. What I do know almost for certain at this point, though, is that the same thing is happening in the information economy. The bubble of the gated institutional narrative has been popped. It is collapsing around them. They do not possess the ability to to control information any longer. They do not possess the ability to control people by controlling information any longer. And this is an intolerable threat to their position at the top of the food chain. So they're going to do everything they can. Um, What we lose if they get this is, of course, both uh regular freedom and cognitive freedom the ability to think as we will the ability to actually engage in this marketplace we 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 leave a marketplace of ideas that will will solve problems better than anything we've ever seen before and enter into a uh a managed administered information economy where we're only allowed to know and think what we're told we're allowed to know and think of course the 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 rub here is advanced artificial intelligence. What is that? What role does that play? I don't know. Uh, I bring it up because I know that it plays into the formulations of these super technocrat people um, and that our cognitive liberty lies at risk through what we might call, or I think is called an algorithm. I don't know, rule by algorithm. The algorithms will only allow us access to information that uh, we that it deems we need to know, uh, if you will. And so we're conditioned by super intelligent algorithms. I guess that's the equivalent of communism stage six, where the algorithms make sure everybody stays fat, dumb, and happy and informed only on need on a need to know basis. Uh, and otherwise the real workings of the world are, are completely opaque to them. Um, something like that. I don't know, but what we lose out on is again, look at capitalism the way that it works is people are allowed to have their own property, to own their own property. They have rights to their own property, and they're therefore allowed to risk their own property to increase it. And risking their own property to increase it is something they do because it profits. it's profitable for them to do so in every sense. And people create a gigantic network, economic network known as a market around this that turns into a gigantic positive-sum game. That's what the value of creating this risk-taking opportunity of your own property really accomplishes. The result is gigantic amounts of prosperity, flourishing, reductions, the the things that Steven Pinker is so proud of with his not updated model of reality, Uh, you know, the, the declining starvation rate, declining disease rates, declining infant mortality rates, increasing uh, opportunity to pursue one's interests and passions, etc. And so, the way this works, though, if we, I think, was this Mises or 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 Hayek? I can't recall. The way the way this works is that the obser- the observation is that when you trade goods and property, when you trade property in general, you also trade information about what the market 
will bear, what the market needs, what the market wants. Um, it's not a perfect system of information exchange, but it's a very effective one. Uh, if you lose money producing a product nobody wants, then the market has trimmed that product out. And if you make more money by producing a mar- something the market does want or people around you in the market, which is that's what it means, people with access to it do want, then you will make money and you'll make more of it and so on. And so that information about what people want and need is communicated very efficiently by the market. And that's why central planning, according to, I think it was von Mises, but it might've been Hayek. Um, pretty sure von Mises, sorry. Uh, that information exchange is what makes the market economy work better than any controlled or planned economy, because you don't have the computing power to be able to do the planned economy at that level to understand and, and, and predict needs. And plus the ingenuity involved in capitalism, people perceiving needs that are not yet being met by having that vision and creating something new um, is very difficult in a planned economy. Uh, in fact, there's virtually no incentive for it. So in parallel, in a free information flowing economy, a true marketplace of ideas, people would be free to do their own research. They're free to reach their own conclusions. They're free to take risks based upon those conclusions, just like people are free to risk their property and go bankrupt in capitalism. And this will be the essential liberty that defines, this is where the essential liberty that defines the coming era if we escape this stupid great reset, technocracy. This is the essential liberty that defines the step forward, the ability to do your own research, whatever this liberty should be called and be however it should be framed. It is the freedom to do your own research, reach your own conclusion and take risks in your life based upon those conclusions without being fettered. That is the essential freedom. It's caught up in the idea of freedom of belief and freedom of speech, which say is is contained within the First Amendment of the United States. But there's something that needs to be articulated in our new era to really break it down, because this is the essential liberty for a free information economy. There has to be a way to articulate this more clearly, that we must be free to do our own research, reach our own conclusions, and take risks upon those based on those conclusions, the same way that we do with property. And that has to be secured in particular. If this is the essential liberty, in other words, I think what this implies, practically speaking, in a country like the United States, if it can get on track enough to do it, is that the First Amendment has to be applied to the information economy in such a way as to secure the right of people to do their own research, reach their own conclusions, and take risks based on those conclusions as they will. Um, this may come down to something mostly as simple as guaranteeing that any, say, this is a recommendation in Woke Inc. by uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, that any social, so I didn't come up with this, that any um, social media company that wants Section 230 protection, which prevents them from being sued uh, or being liable for damages for um, things that users publish on their platforms. Twitter, what I tweet is not something Twitter did. So there's a good argument to say that they shouldn't be held liable for it. Well, Vivek's brilliant argument is that this essential liberty might be able to be, he doesn't phrase it that way. This is, I think, my thinking, but he says that the 230 reform can be achieved 
by forcing by changing it so that the companies that receive 230 protection must abide by the first amendment if it's constitutionally protected speech then the social media company has no jurisdiction to control it and that has to be um, not only put into play but then enforced vigorously um, that may be enough. I don't know. But the point is that people must be afraid to do their own research, reach their own conclusions, really disseminate their own conclusions so that we can exchange that information uh, in this doing your own research process and then to take risks based on those conclusions. And, and the result is not quite as far as Christopher Hitchens put it, that we will view, um, he said, to, to regard all experts as mammals and we don't have to go quite that far but we do have to regard all experts as something like an informed consultant uh, which over time we may find ways to determine how good of a consultant they are uh, and maybe the market literally how much you're worth to give answers based on your track record has the solution to that i'm not sure but at any rate this is the parallel liberty to the liberty of property at the heart of capitalism under John Locke's formulation. Um, I think that the, 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 the other liberties mentioned in our, our Declaration of Independence, life and the pursuit of happiness, um, follow from the same place in this information, emerging information economy. So this is what's happening. What's happening in the world to kind of summarize then is that Enlightenment 1.0 did not move us into a marketplace of ideas. It moved us out of a magisterium into a information feudalism. And we are now in Enlightenment 2.0, which is moving us out of, uh, out of information feudalism into a marketplace of ideas, a truly free and decentralized information economy, which anybody can participate by doing their own research, sharing that research, reaching their own conclusions. I should, should have said that first, and then taking risk based on the conclusions. The Reddit hive mind or the whatever hive mind uh, can generate answers, and that should not be restricted or limited, and that's absolutely crucial, absolutely key. So this reframes where we are in history of information. Now, the second part of what's happening is that the people who were the lordlings of the information economy in that aristocracy, the information aristocracy, our expert class, broadly speaking, caste, I guess is a better way to put it. That's your major journalists, your institutional players, your big universities and academics, etc. But in particular, this these set of weirdo technocrats that have gathered together at places like Davos and the World Economic Forum and so on. Those people want to maintain their ability to control information and thus control the populace to do what they will make want to make people do what they want. And they are trying to circumvent this freedom of information stage as rapidly and vigorously as possible to establish a administered and managed information economy that's tantamount to information socialism under their control, which is going to be, like I said, an oligarchical technocracy run for their own power and profit to control all of us plebs so that we uh, can be brought forward into the right kind of information future, which of course will be sustainable under their direction and will be environmentally, socially responsible will form the right kinds of governance. There's your ESG and your uh, sustainable development goals crap. 
that they've latched onto as the heart of this project. But their goal ultimately is not really those things. Their goal is actually to control information so they can continue to control the world and control people the same way they have been. This reminds me of something that I said, wrap up with that, uh, I heard, I didn't say, a while back, is somebody commented to me, and it was a very unsettling comment, that nobody knows the true history of the 20th century because it's all been behind this so-called gated institutional narrative. And no, it wasn't Eric Weinstein that said this to me. Although Eric Weinstein might have, it's very plausible that Eric Weinstein said it to the person who did say it to me. So it's very plausible that that is what's going on, uh, that nobody knows the history of the 20th century because it's all been behind official narrative, which been has been dramatically distorted in favor of generating this very corrupt information aristocracy that uses it to create a technocracy by which they rule over us, which some people refer to as the deep state, um, at least in the United States. And that's kind of the heart of this. Nobody does know the history of the 20th century accurately, but that won't be true of the 21st century unless they get their way unless they can continue to control the institutional narrative and force people via something like social credit to participate in the lie that maintains their power and advantage and their vision for molding the world as they think it should be molded, regardless of what's good for us, regardless of what's good for any individual person, because they become our betters, our aristocratic lords who are, are going to take good care of us by protecting our, us from ourselves. And um, they're wrong. They're arrogant and they're wrong. Just like a market noticing the qualification for the concentration of capital, thus power, that occurs within monopolies and trusts, just like the market provides an information exchange about the market itself second to none that allows for the greatest growth of prosperity and flourishing also for other reasons people are invested in their own property and growing it just like people are invested in finding out their own information and acting upon it to it's a i don't mean to sound like too much in the personal self-interest, but the personal self-interest is actually very motivating for people. People want to take care of themselves first, their own first. They want to answer questions interesting to them first. And so just like the way that that works, the decentralized, universally free, so-called fourth stage of history, if you want, information economy will produce far greater ability to answer questions to have ideas, to understand what's going on in the world, including the history around us that's unfolding around us, but also thus to create prosperity and uh, good outcomes for people whose outcomes depend upon getting right answers, not politically useful answers to some uh, crony class uh, to live their lives. And so I can't say strongly enough that these these information lordlings, the information aristocrats who want to establish an information socialism are wrong and that we must fight for our cognitive liberty. We must fight for our ability to do our own research. We must fight for our ability 
to draw our own conclusions and communicate those with other people in a, in a, in a way that has never before been possible because it's going to open the door to an entirely new information era and, and an entirely new um, so, so the neo-Marxist argument that advanced capitalism, which means once it solved the monopoly problem and the trust problem, is a stabilizing force. It stabilizes societies. It allows people to build a better life. It allows people, rather than immiserating them as Marx predicted capitalism will, it, it allows them to uh, have prosperity and a very good life. Even Herbert Marcuse says it's a very good life. But it's not a communist one, so they should overthrow it. So a very good life. It allows us to build a solid, stable, flourishing, and functioning society. And the same thing is going to be true with a deregulated, uh, sorry, decentralized, not deregulated, information economy that's not being administered to us by, or by information aristocrats or information socialists who have a dictatorship of, the technoc- of technocracy or whatever, a technocratic dictatorship over all of us to control what we think. This this freedom of information exchange, the freedom to do your own research, is the bedrock of a the, the, the growth and prosperity, the, the access to having a better and more fulfilling life, whether that's fulfilling um, intellectually, whether it's fulfilling physically, because you learn more about what you can do to you know, live a better life physically, whether that's nutrition, whether it's exercise, whether that's whatever it happens to be, you know, body hacking, they call it or whatever. And whether it's spiritually, whether it's to deepen your understanding of an existing faith or to find other passions and interests and to deepen your knowledge in them. Or didn't they just have some guy who taught himself to throw a javelin by YouTube win like a gold medal in the Olympics or something like that this year in javelin throwing? He learned on the internet by himself over five years. Like it, it, it it's unbelievable what this this i mean i don't know how many things i can do now like around the house or in my car or just the things that i th- think are interesting i even made like a knife with a hammer and a fire and like I forged a knife um by hand by watching youtube videos of people forging knives that are expert blacksmiths it's amazing what this is going to be able to produce for us the answers to questions, the, the the increase in prosperity and stabilization. Once we get through, we're in a very tumultuous phase uh, right now. I mean, obviously, the transition politically during the Enlightenment and the liberal uh, transformation of the 18th century was very destabilizing. There's a lot of fighting. There were a lot of wars. There were a lot of things. So now we have lots of information camps at war with one another. But this is to be expected. So it's a huge white pill. Because maybe what's actually happening around us is such a big, the the Enlightenment won. The Enlightenment won. Liberalism did largely win throughout the West. Maybe what's happening right now is that we're entering into Enlightenment 2.0, which is such a big, such a big powerful force that it cannot be stopped. And the same way that we moved away from a magisterial information economy into a feudal one is going to lead us to leave a feudal one and go into a free one. And I don't think socialism's never worked anywhere else. I don't think that they're going to be able to control this either. Social credit score is the one and only tool that they have to really make it work. That or a completely monitored without social credit, I don't think it matters. Uh, information, you know, everything you do on the internet being recorded and reported or whatever to try to shame you. But I think this is the picture of what's going on. And I think if, if we talk about it, why it's such a big white pill, that Enlightenment 2.0 is such a big 
white pill is because I don't think they can contain the change. I think this just like so I mentioned at the beginning that I've been reading this book, Fire and Light, and Burns uses this analogy. He says that the Enlightenment was like it's a light that cannot easily be put out, but he oddly like mixes the fire and light metaphors and it, 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 the idea. It's not a it, you can't just put out the fire of the Enlightenment because there's little fires everywhere and everything you try to put on it and smother it, it can it can burn them. It can it can burn through them. And so it's not a fire that's easily quenched. And this one is far bigger, far more powerful. Now, of course, what that means is we must resist with all force, with all available capacity, the institution of a social credit system that could control it. That becomes the obvious enemy of this uh, free information marketplace of ideas. And all of these increasingly clumsy and awkward looking attempts to, to, to trick us into one, which will eventually become the, the just forcing of us into one as happened in China, uh, are, those are the things that we must dump so much energy and effort into resisting. And what we are laying down then is for, I don't know how long because things are different now, but for generations to come, we might enjoy a period first of there will be destabilization and difficulty, but of unprecedented growth and prosperity and the ability to solve tremendous human problems, even if climate change is a problem, its solution lies in this this direction. Only bad solutions lie in the administered economy, information economy. Good solutions will emerge from this open-ended one. And so that means that people, and I mentioned Jonathan Rausch and Kindly Inquisitors is brilliant, People now who think that this unfettered information economy that's emerging, that people are doing their own research and it's irresponsible, that people are promulgating conspiracy theories and wrong, wrong ideas, that that's dangerous because people will believe the wrong stuff. They're dead wrong. They're missing the whole picture. They're missing everything. They're missing the most important stuff. Because what's going to happen... <sighs> because... They're putting their faith in crumbling institutions, basically, and what those represent in terms of knowledge. But what they're missing is the fact that if we are all talking and we are all doing our own research, we are going to find more and more and more and more and more nuggets of truth. They're looking at the destabilization as we first realize this capacity to become what my friend Mike Nana calls information Protestants. Uh, they're looking at this first opera, the, the destabilization that comes with this, these first steps into decentralizing or removing the, to, to giving property to the masses, if you will, intellectual and informational property to the masses. They're looking at that destabilization and saying, oh no, sky is falling. This is a catastrophe. And they're missing what comes out of it on the other side as we start to understand the questions of what genuinely qualifies an opinion as an expert opinion. And I didn't even attach it to a person. What genuinely qualifies an opinion as, as an, an idea, as an informed idea. And that's what comes out the other side of this thing. And I think because things happen so quickly and so many people are involved in the project, which is a little different than the 18th century that this, this could actually evolve quite quickly. Um, and I think that's a lot of reason for hope, but it's also a lot of reason to believe people who say things that we, like, we need to clamp down on misinformation and people shouldn't do their own research. We have, to, we have to understand, we have to believe those people are wrong. 
we have to believe that those people are absolutely missing what's going on and absolutely missing the uh, the the moment that we're actually in, which is the beginning of a second enlightenment that's moving us from an earlier stage, I guess we can say, of information economy into a later one. We left the magisterial stage for an aristocracy in the previous enlightenment. We're leaving the aristocracy for a marketplace of ideas, a truly free information economy, as long as we can resist the tools and the idiotic pleas of people saying that people doing their own research is dangerous, even if it's in contradiction to their own earlier work.